This uh, series, we're kind of calling The Grace of Fearing God. I know that that's together maybe uh, two words you don't often seem to see together, The Grace of Fearing God, because fearing God seems like such a terrifying thing, and terrifying things don't often seem gracious. Uh, so we talked last time the various kinds of things that we are scared of, afraid of, Planes crashing, spiders, all that kind of thing. Uh, not normally we see as instruments of God's grace. But there is a grace that comes with fearing God. Okay, we're going to do a, a quick review there. I'm not going to go over all of those notes again. But you've, if you've got the handout, you do see, uh, if this is your first time here, I've got all those references down so that you can go through those again uh, uh, at home if you want. We talked last time about the problem of fearing God, and that's just what we're talking about now. It's kind of a difficult concept to wrap our minds around. Fearing God seems incompatible with love, but yet we know that God's word requires both of these things. It requires many things. It requires us to fear God, but also to love him. We looked last time at Proverbs 1.7. I'll read that again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That really the beginning of a relationship with God, of truly understanding uh, living in God's world, begins with fearing Him. We talked last time about the blessing of fearing God. You can see that there's a, a bunch of verses there. I hope that you've looked at some of those. Psalm 103, and I'll just read the ones from Psalm 103 just to kind of whet your appetite if you're new here this morning, if you weren't able to be with us a couple weeks ago. Psalm 103, verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. God's loving kindness is towards those who fear him. What better than having God's loving kindness, his covenant, keeping steadfast love. Psalm 103, verse 13 has another of those blessings. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Those who fear him have the Lord's compassion. And Psalm 103, verse 17, just to refresh again another one of these blessings. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children. You know, I, I think that we're going to see many uh, uh, hints of this morning's message from Psalm 23 as we talk about fearing God. I think we see one there. The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him. So that's just a couple of the blessings of fearing God. We looked at the command to fear God. Once again, there's many, many verses. Uh, I've, and actually, the, the command to fear God there is just a handful of them. We, we could have listed 30 or 40 more of them. I'll, I'll just read a couple to refresh our memory. Now, Israel, from Deuteronomy 10:12. What does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Not many of us would doubt that we should walk in his ways. Not many of us would doubt that we should love him. Not many of us doubt that we should serve him, but fear him. You know, and I know that the temptation is, wait, I know this verse in 1 John that says I don't have to fear God anymore. So we're going to talk about that later. Uh, we, we think as New Testament saints, as people who are part of the church, a ton of the forgiveness of Christ and that we know him as Father. It can be foreign to think about fearing him. So, so that's, that's really what we're going to be focusing on this morning. Ecclesiastes 12.13 is another great summarizing verse about fearing God. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. 
We talked some about that, uh, and if you see your notes there at the top, the review from last time, there's the commendation for fearing God. Uh, We just looked at how it's a great way to summarize someone. Either they are someone who fears God or someone who doesn't. We're going to go on look a little bit at the complexity of fearing God. Um, Many times in Scripture, people have been uh, told to not fear God. Don't be afraid. You're going to be okay. Yes, out of nowhere, uh, you, you, you see a vision of Christ. We, we, we see that in, in Revelation 1. Jesus reaches out to, to, to John. Don't be afraid. So there is this complexity of fearing God. And we're going we're to look at some of those verses. Um, and yet, fear, and we looked at these verses last time, is, is combined in many verses with delight. It's combined with joy, with praising God, with hoping in God. So I just wanted to build a case that those are not mutually exclusive things. That fearing God is compatible with delighting in God and rejoicing in God, worshiping God and praising him. Just one example of that, Psalm 22, verses 23 and 24. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel. Again, I know that many of us are very comfortable with this idea of glorifying God, standing in awe of him. Well, those who fear him are to praise him. We uh, looked at our notes last time that this is not just an, 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 an Old Testament concept, and that's what we're really going to uh, uh, be talking about this week. We did spend the majority of our time last time defining fearing God. So what does it actually mean to fear God? Many of the verses that have to do with fearing God have to do with obedience, with consequences, and with judgment. But we looked last time that fearing God is more than just fearing his judgment. That is a major theme, though, where I actually kind of circle back to that. We define fearing God as responding to the revelation. And I think, I think I've got that in notes here. I'm going to turn this back on like I was told to. Listen to instructions. Defining the fear of God. So fearing God is responding to God's revelation of himself in a way that is appropriate. It's a way that's appropriate. So, And really, I think that's true for whatever God has said about himself. If, if he's given you a command, then fearing him is to obey that command. If there's a fear of God, uh, if he calls you to pray, then you should pray. If he warns of judgment, then you should listen. It has to do with the fact that when God speaks, we are going to listen. And we're going to respond in a way that is appropriate. I enjoyed ta- talking last time. I love thinking about fearing God as having direction with it. Fearing God has direction with it. It's not just to leave us kind of in a, 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 a huddled, crying mess of terror. You know, like, I don't know if any of you see scary movies. Maybe one time in your past you have. And you have that feeling of just kind of being comatose, right? I'm just left here shaking. Well, that's not what a fear of God does. That's not a godly fear of God. The fear of God has direction. Psalm 31 verse 19 says, How great is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you. And I love seeing those parallels. And whether he's building upon or it's another way of saying it, you have stored up for those who fear you, you have wrought for those who take refuge in you. And those, and those two concepts go so well together. Fearing God in the way that God desires and delights and will lead you to take refuge in God. 
Fearing God doesn't lead you running away from God, but running to God. And we talked about how, how God is, in a sense, both, both the, the, uh, the avalanche and the place where you hide from the avalanche, which I know may be bad because I don't know where you'd exactly go. If you've seen more of the Planet of the Apes, you know where you go, right? I don't know, many of you saw that. Anyways, you go up a tree if you're a monkey, and you, you, you get up the tree as quickly as possible. I just boiled that for the rest of you, but it didn't sound like anyone was going to see it. Uh, it was a pretty cool movie. Psalm 145, verse 19. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear the cry and will save them. This is what fearing God looks like. Those who fear God cry out to him, and he will save them. You can't fear God and not cry out to him. That is not fearing God. That is not the direction that God requires. A true fear of God doesn't leave us hiding from God. It leads us to run to God. It doesn't leave us, as Jesus talks about in the parable of talents, it doesn't leave us burying our talents, knowing that God's this cruel master. No, it leads us to maximize our talents, to maximize investment that he's given us. Here's a, a sobering picture of what fear of God is not. In Isaiah 2, uh, the, the end of Isaiah 2 is a sobering picture, and I'll read a, a little bit. It's, it's really about the day of the Lord coming. Uh, it's the cosmic smackdown. And here's how those respond who don't fear God the right way. Men will go into caves of, of the rocks and into holes of the ground. This is Isaiah 2, 19 and 21, for those who are listening. Uh, uh, online, will go into the caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. That's the wrong place, right? It's not going to help. When he arises to make the earth tremble. And in that day, men will cast away to the moles. I don't know why the moles, but in the moles and the bats. They're idols of silver and they're idols of gold. They're clinging on to them, but the terror is coming. So they get rid of them. Like these idols aren't doing me anything. So they throw them away which they made for themselves to worship, verse 21, in order to go into the cavern of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. That's the wrong place though, right? You're not, when, when, when you see God rising to make the earth tremble, you shouldn't run into a cave. You, you shouldn't be trying to hide in the rocks. Where should you be running? To Christ. Right? That is not the fear of the Lord that God requires. Instead, here's a good picture of godly fear from Acts 16, 29 to 31. And this is the, the Philippian jailer. And after uh, Paul and Silas had been thrown in jail in Philippi, after they'd been beaten with rods, they're singing. And then God sends that, that earthquake to rescue them. You know, he, he loosens the chains off of their arms. And so what does the jailer do? He, he calls for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? That's godly fear there, right? That's godly fear. Not getting rid of your idols and going to hiding in a rock. You know, it would not have been godly fear for the Philippian jailer to run the opposite direction and say, I'm getting out of Philippi. Instead, to run to God's messengers who bring God's word and say, what must I do to be saved? And they answer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And that's what godly fear does. It runs to Christ and not from Christ. 
So fearing God in, 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 involves, involves direction, running to God and not from him. Now, I do want to kind of expand upon that fearing God here. So fearing God is responding to God's revelation of himself in a way that's appropriate. And then I'm going to expand upon that, especially, but not only, the revelation that God is judge. Because I don't want to lose that. And, and it really became reinforced even as I read through Lots of verses about fearing God, and there are lots of them, uh, like hundreds and hundreds, that many of them have to do with obedience. Many of them have to do with the consequences of sin, and many of them have to do with judgment. So I do want to, so I would say that, say that, say that the first part does, is the daily response of someone who's fearing God. Responding to God's revelation of himself in a way that's appropriate. I'm going to listen to God. I'm going to do what he says. If he says love him, I'm going to love him. If he says run to him, I'm going to run to him. If he says flee from idolatry, I'm going to flee from idolatry. I'm going to do what he says. But especially, but not only, the revelation that God is judge. And, and, and really, if you look through those verses you have there, you're going to see that that's in many of those verses. Uh, and, and, and in italics there on um, the definition of fearing God, I, I put a couple in italics to see, to see that I have included some more. One that we looked at last week was Exodus 20.20. 20. Moses said to the people, do, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. Such a, 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 a tremendous passage. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. Here, God reveals himself with, with thunder and lightning and trumpets on Mount Sinai. The people say, Moses, we can't deal with this. We, we are, you know, and it reminds me of Isaiah 6, where Isaiah says, I am undone. I'm unraveling. I'm falling apart before God. I can't stand before him. And the people of Israel are saying, Moses, can you go talk to God for us? And Moses says, don't be afraid. For God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. Don't be afraid, so be afraid. Really, don't be afraid, so be afraid so you don't sin. And that's what you're going to see with many verses about fearing God. They have to do with don't sin. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 to 14. I already read verse 13. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Again, those two are there. Because this applies to every person. Here's verse 14 building upon the idea. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And that is that concept, and that's why I wanted to build upon it, especially but not only in light of God as judge. Because God is going to judge everything we've done, everything which is hidden. Now, I know that that can get complex to think about in the light of what we know about our sins being forgiven. So hopefully we're going to kind of understand those better together today. Job 28, 28, uh, another verse that just kind of shows us. Uh, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. You want to know what fearing the Lord is? You leave evil. You get away from it. You have nothing to do with it. Proverbs 3, 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Why? Because he's going to judge you. Because you have to give an account. Because there are consequences for disobedience. Now, maybe you're wondering, 
uh, what I have often wondered is what does it mean to fear God in the church age, right? You know, you're like, well, those are lots of Old Testament verses there. What does it mean to fear God in the church age? You know, we know the gospel. We know that our sins are forgiven. We know we have the spirit of sonship crying out in our hearts, Abba, Father. We, 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 we know that we're not going to go to hell because Jesus took that wrath. So what does fearing God mean in the church age? Now, there are some challenging verses. I don't want that one yet. There, 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 are, there are some challenging verses, and we'll look at again these later. Verses like Romans 8.15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Like, I was rescued from this fear. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I don't have to be afraid anymore. My heart cries out, Abba, Father. Or Hebrews 2.15, that Christ came to free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. I don't have to fear judgment anymore. Or 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. The one who fears is not perfected in love. And those verses, uh, if you're trying to get them down, are going to be... uh, uh, in our third point. So we're going to look at those later. I just wanted to read them there because I know you're thinking them, right? Like, I've got perfect love. Like, that fear's been cast out. I'm not afraid anymore. Great. But we still have to fear God. Okay. So, and one of the things that we looked at is that fearing God is part of the new covenant promise. This is one of the most, uh, 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 and I don't know if it's, I'm pretty sure and I'm looking for Ben and John maybe, but that I, th- I think this is the most quoted passage in, in the New Testament, not the number of times, but the number of verses. Uh, it's the promise of the new covenant from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 32, verses 39 to 40. And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Why do you not turn away from God? Because that's the work of God's Spirit in your hearts to give you a fear of Him. That's part of this new covenant promise. That is what it means to be a new covenant saint. Being a new covenant saint, someone who gets this this promise of this new heart, the indwelling Spirit, the part of you that loves God's law, all of that is inseparable from fearing God. So you have to do it. Okay, Acts 9.31. And uh, Acts has several kind of like summary statements as the church grows, and here's one of them. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up. And going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. So let me ask you, from that verse, do you think Luke sees going on in the fear of the Lord as being a good or bad thing? good thing yeah right yeah right i mean right and and if nothing else and like maybe we would kind of wonder if it says going on in the fear of the lord like, oh, that kind of ended in a you know uh nebulous kind of way or maybe in an ominous tone oh they went on in the fear of the lord i know my old testament so that's good but look at what comes next and in the comfort of the holy spirit isn't it interesting that those two ideas are con, I mean, they're not contrasted, right? They're working in conjunction perfectly. Today's favorite word is paradox, right, Ben? Today's favorite word is paradox. 
Acts 9, 31, that going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And that was a mark of their growth. So those truths can be held at the same time. Increasing in fearing God is inseparable from enjoying the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We're going to try to see more how. Um, let's look at Acts 5, verses 2 through 11. And it's too big for me to put there, so you're going to have to open up your Bibles. Go ahead to Acts 5, verses 2 through 11. And I'll read it to you, but you please, please turn there because we, we, we got a couple questions from it. But a man named Ananias with his w- wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, might as well start at verse 1, and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. So the early, early church was being very generous. They were helping one another as people had needs. People were selling property uh, to help the poor. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Peter's saying, you didn't have to sell this, and you didn't have to give all the money. So what's going on? Verse 5, and as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. Verse 6, the young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Verse 7, now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. This is crazy. This is a true story. And Peter responded to her. So give your offerings together as a couple, right? No, I don't know. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. When Peter, then Peter said to her, verse 9, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. So what was the result in verses 5 and 11 of, Anna, uh, uh, of Ananias and Sapphira dying? In verses 5 and 11, there's a common result. What was the result of them dying? Yeah, they feared God. The church feared God. Do you think that Ananias and Sapphira feared God? Why or why not? So did these people fear God? What do you think? Sure doesn't seem so, right? You know, it it describes them as lying to the Holy Spirit. Somehow, they are confident that they can get away with this. This is a very low view of God. I think so low that we can ask, were these people saved? There's good answers on both sides of that. They, They sure aren't demonstrating the fruit of salvation. They had a very low view of God. Now, verse 5 says, great fear came over all who heard of it. Verse 11, great fear came over the whole church. We, we saw that all already in, in Acts 9. Luke sees this as a good thing. You can imagine the effect that their death had upon the believers of the early church. 
What effect do you think it had? Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's possible. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's, 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 there's this very kind of, kind of sobering side, and, 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 and I don't discount that this authenticates, uh, you know, Peter as an apostle, right? I mean, like, 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 like they're coming uh, to bring this offering to him. They're speaking to him. Uh, and Peter says, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. So not that he, he, he is the Holy Spirit, but there is, a, you know, there, 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 there's something to, to, to how they're handling God's word at the very least. But that there's this continuity with the God of the Old Testament. This is the God of the Old Testament uh, burned Nadab and Abihu because of bringing a strange offering into the temple. Right, like, like this is the, this is the early church learning. Yes, forgiveness is amazing. Reconciliation with God is being preached to the nations. I cannot mess around with this God. Right? I can't lie to this God. This God knows me. So I can't imagine, but it didn't have a purifying effect on the early church. And obviously, Luke looks at that as a good thing. Now, that doesn't mean, and maybe you get more comfort from the Holy Spirit when you see this happen, right? But, 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 but we saw in Acts 9 that they increase in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So these things could be at tandem. They could celebrate the reconciliation with God. And yet, no, I am not going to lie to God. I'm not going to try to get away with sin. So why should someone save Someone who's been saved, fear God. Well, Matthew 10, 28 says, this is Jesus' command. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's Jesus' command. Now, let's go ahead and look at our first point. I think, I think this is having a little bit of the sobering effect that it did in Acts, right? Like, this is heavy stuff. Uh, and, 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 and I thought about, uh, about including this too. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded uh, that in the early church, God took people's lives because of eating in an unworthy way with, with, with a disregard and uh, unrepentant hearts. Okay, so why do we as New Testament saints... Uh, why should we fear the Lord? Fearing the Lord motivates us to excel in obedience. Fearing the Lord motivates us to excel in obedience. If you're taking notes there, the missing word is excel. Excel. There you go. Just to help you out there. Uh, now, I can tell on the looks of some of your faces, this is a complex doctrine, right? This is some pretty heavy stuff. Uh, Romans 14, verses 11 to 12 says, For it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Following the exaltation of Christ, and we're going to see that in, in Philippians 2. As every knee shall bow, every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. The necessary evidence of salvation is not faith, but works. Right? The evidence of salvation is not faith, but works. Now, faith is how we become saved, and faith is how we continue saved. 
But the evidence of our faith is works. James talks about that, right? Without works, faith is dead. Faith will result in works. It's okay. Some of you, breathe a sigh of relief. And I don't mean that in a flippant way. It's okay to be judged on what you've done. Because you are new creatures. You have the fruit of the Spirit in your life. It's not all doom and judgment. This is good news. Okay, and we're going to hopefully flesh that out. Now, maybe some of you are just kind of like, this is jarring. This, this isn't like what I normally hear about the gospel. I hear about my sins forgiven. I hear about the wrath of God satisfied. That's totally true. And yet, I do want to, to, to point out, and, and, and I've included a bunch of, uh, of references, if you flip your page over, uh, uh, in parentheses on the back, just to reinforce that the Bible talks a lot about judgment. Matthew 16, 24 to, to, to 27. Um, we quote these verses all the time about following Christ. Then Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Right? We, we use that verse in, in sharing the gospel and calling people to repentance. Next verse, 25. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We share that one all the time. Verse 26, Matthew 16. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And here's verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. That's the exclamation point that Jesus puts on this call to, to lose your life and to pick up your cross and follow and to deny yourself because judgment is coming. That I will repay every man according to his deeds. Matthew 12, verse 36 and 37. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. By your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, this is not talking about us making ourselves righteous with God. It's not like, I'm going to go home today, I'm going to say as many good words as I can, because I need to get justification. We know the gospel is what Jesus did. right? It's the good news that we have been declared righteous. But that's not talking about what happens on Judgment Day when he evaluates what we say, and he says, are you saved or are you not? Now, he knows this, right? But he looks and says, I'm going to listen to what you've said. And that's going to be, 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 be evidence of whether you are justified, whether you are righteous. There's a, a lot more verses uh, there. John 5, 28 to, to 29 talks about Jesus judging those who've done good. Revelation 20, verse 12, uh, uh, Jesus judges according to what you have done. Revelation 2, 23, according to your deeds. He's talking to the church there. This, this, this is a big doctrine in the New Testament that I think sometimes we can just kind of forget about. We cling so much as our hope, and that's great. Christ died in my place. Amen, right? That is our hope. And yet, we can rejoice because of the works that we have. Now, uh, another verse kind of following upon Romans 14, 11 to 12 is Philippians 2, 11 through 13. Uh, and I'll preach this in some weeks. Uh, who knows when that is? And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. So there's that triumphant scene 
of Christ being exalted in heaven, looking forward to the day when everyone bows before him, whether they want to or not. Every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is Yahweh. Then verse 12, so then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as my presence only, but now much more my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because of that scene where Christ is exalted, because of that final judgment, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's good news, verse 13, for it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's given you all the resources. You've got everything that you need. In a sense, the, his spiritual bank account is open. You can withdraw all the resources you need to obey as much as you want. He even gives you the desire to do it. So that changes how we think about judgment. He gives the resources so we can excel in obedience, right? But with that scene of us being before him. Uh, let's see. Next verse, 1 Peter 1, 16 to 19. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He's calling them to holiness. Verse 17. If you address as father... The one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Why, why do you think Peter talks about our father being one who impartially judges according to each one's work. Why does he talk about God the Father being impartial? Does anyone have a guess? I like to pause every 10 minutes to make you feel like you have to answer a question. Like, why does he need to say impartially judges? Do you think God's children get a free pass? They don't get a free pass from judgment. The teacher's kids have to follow the same rules. Now, we know, in a sense, do we get a free pass from judgment? Yes, in a way, right? The wrath of Christ, I mean, the wrath of God has been satisfied upon Christ. That's, that's good news. If you believe that, you'll be saved. But why does he say this? Yes, and, 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 and I know that different people will, 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 will argue more or less how many different judgments there there are. I, I, I personally tend to see them a little bit more unified. Uh, uh, but yeah, we're going we're gonna to be before the judgment seat of Christ. So he impartially judges. I don't think he's just saying, saying one Christian over another Christian he impartially judges. I think he's talking about everyone. So the intimate relationship we have with the Father should lead to obedience, right? If you address his Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear. You have all the more reason. This is your father, so live with fear. Well, let me find out where I am here. Uh, so this is just one among many motivators in Scripture to obey. Why, why, why does Peter mention the time of your stay on earth? Be because it's limited. Your days are numbered. Now's time to maximize. Now's time to get the most out of your salvation. Now's time to look forward to judgment. 
right? And that's such a strange concept, right? To look forward to judgment. But this is, like, this is the gospel, I think, I think, really getting into you. You know, it's one thing to get the gospel to the point where you don't fear wrath anymore. It's another thing to get the gospel to such an extent that you look forward to judgment. Not just because he's not going to declare you not guilty, but because he's going to declare you obedient. And not just because of Christ's imputed righteousness, but because you've been obeying. Because you have the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Because you've taken commands like this to be holy seriously. Because you've maximized upon Christ's investment. And like that's why he talks about you've been redeemed. I should never turn the page where the verse is. You've been redeemed from the futile uh, ways. Let's see, where is it? Okay, Not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from, from your futile... Fut- is it futile or futile? I don't know. Uh, I know it's not futile. Futile ways of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Look at the cost. So go obey as much as possible, because your father's going to judge you. But he's your father, so look forward to it. He's going to come home, and you've been obedient. This is good news. You're going to have good things to present to him. You know, fear and confidence are not opposing ideas. Fear and confidence are not opposing ideas. How many of you are confident drivers? Hopefully, okay, two of you. Uh, The rest of you just stay here for a while. We're going to do some driver ed in the parking lot afterwards. Okay, a couple of you are are confident drivers. Uh, Hopefully more of you are confident. There's there's no test. I'm not going to have you take something out of my eye, okay? Uh, But that doesn't mean you shouldn't be fearful drivers, right? You have to give an account to the police. But even more, you have to be safe, right? So fear and confidence are not such opposition ideas. And th- this is, it shows how, how much we can be dominated by a sense of guilt about our sin and maybe how much more we need to embrace the righteousness of Christ in our behalf. That as soon as we think about judgment, we think, oh, no, Right? This is horrible. I've I got to find a place to hide. No, you're hiding in Christ. You, you've, you've, you've got good works to show. So excel. Uh, let's see here. And, and, and uh, I don't think it says I don't think I'll, I'll, I'll need to mention it. But both 1 Peter 2.17 and, and, and 4.5 also talk about us giving, giving account to God and fearing him. So here's another passage. And I'm going through these passages because these are really some, and I would say the main ones that, that talk about fearing God in the, New, in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. What is the reason that Paul gives in verse 10 for being pleasing to him in verse 9? Verse 9 is a great verse, right? We make it our aim, our ambition to please him. But what's the reason in verse 10? We have to give an account. We're coming before the judgment seat of Christ. So is that motivating you? It's okay to have multiple motivations for obedience. It's okay to be motivated by what Christ has done. It's it's okay to be motivated by what Christ will do. 
He's holding us accountable. He rewards obedience. A, a commentator named David Garland says, Paul works knowing that God will, scrut will scrutinize all that he says in and does. It's crazy to think about. God is going to, as Jesus said that, for our words, for what we've done, how we've maximized, maximized upon the salvation he's given us. There's a, uh, another commentator named, named Scott Halfman that says this. This is pretty, pretty wild. The fear of God is the gracious gift of God to keep his people persevering. The fear of God is the gracious gift of God to keep his people persevering. Those who fear God's judgment repent of their sin so that trusting in God once again, they need not fear. And it's totally true. Knowing that we're going to give an account makes us run to Christ again and again and again. We need a Savior. Only the fear of God leads us to not having to fear God. And, and, and the idea there being that, that fearing God as he requires does lead us to the cross again and again, but it will also lead us to say, wait, but, but, but he, he's going to judge what I've done. I, I, want to, I want to be found obedient. I want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. So what does fearing God then lead to? 2 Corinthians 7.1. I think this is a great verse to say, are you doing this? Therefore... Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Are you perfecting holiness in the fear of God? This is a very strange concept if there's no judgment involved here, right? If there's no being held accountable. Why would you perfect holiness in the fear of God? See, it's, it's, it's not okay to settle for mostly sanctified, better than lots of other people, better than other Christians. At least I don't watch that show. It gets, it gets thinner and thinner and thinner, right? Instead of saying, wait, I want to perfect holiness. I want to, to, to be as holy as I can be when he returns because I fear him. Because I don't want to have wasted the salvation that he's given me. Okay, so let's go to number two. I don't know if I'm going to get through all four of these. So number two, fearing the Lord guards our hearts from falling away. So fearing the Lord motivates us to excel in obedience, to, be, to perfect holiness, to complete holiness. Not just rely, in a, in a sense, not just relying, yes, on the finished work of Christ, but, but, but maximizing upon the finished work of Christ. Using the precious, precious blood of Christ, the new life we've been given, to become as holy as possible. But fearing the Lord guards our hearts from falling away. Hebrews 4.1 says, Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Does anyone know why the book of Hebrews was written? Kind of like what the big purpose of the book is? Right? It was written to Jews who were thinking of doing what? Yeah, yeah, of, of, of going back, going back to, 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 to Judaism, of, of minimizing Christ, really ultimately of leaving Christ. And so the whole book is about don't leave, persevere. Now, if you turn your Bibles to Hebrews 4, you can back up to Hebrews 3, verse 11, to, get, to give some context here. And 
uh, it's describing God's judgment of those in the wilderness who refuse to enter the promised land. Verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Hebrews 3.11, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. He's saying that to you, Christians, be careful. Don't have an evil, unbelieving heart that would lead you to fall away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called, still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Right? The reality, the warning is there is you can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin unchecked in your life, if you don't perfect holiness, it can deceive you. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. You have to keep on with Christ. You have to keep clinging to Christ. Verse 15, while it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses, those who had enjoyed this incredible salvation, this incredible rescue, this incredible exodus, were the ones who had turned away from entering the promised land. Verse 17, with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those uh, with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Be afraid of falling away. Why? Implied here is judgment, Right? Don't fall away from Christ. Continue on with Christ. Continue clinging to Christ. Continue obeying Christ. Beware of the deceitfulness of sin. Encourage one another daily. So this fear motivates us to excel in obedience. I'm going to have to give an account for this new life he's given me. But it also is an incredible warning, not just to excel in obedience, but to make sure that we guard our hearts from falling away. That we can say, wait, am I closer to falling away today than I was yesterday? Am I closer to falling away today than I was a year ago? Or 10 years ago? Right? We, we, we should want to stay as close to Christ as possible. Hebrews 10, verses 26 to 31. And we, we looked at this last time. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, terrifying words, that after saying, I'm saved and I've been changed and really experiencing the blessings of salvation to such an extent that they were part of the body, we're under the preaching of the word, we can look back at a conversion experience, look at how I obeyed. For if we go on, but saying after that change, if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace for we know him who said vengeance is mine i will repay and again the lord will judge his people it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living god the warning here is don't fall away from christ don't 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 
fall into the hands of the living God. Don't reject, and he's talking about his trampling under the feet of the blood of Christ, of shaming what we once held dear. Now, you can maybe think, well, I'll never do that. That's, that's, that's a great confidence to have. We grow in that confidence through obedience. We slide towards that through our disobedience. We slide towards that as we stop attending church, as we stop confessing sins. Right? And some of you may actually be on this slide now. You say, I would never trample under my feet the blood of Christ. I cherish the blood of Christ. But you're not really trying to be holy. You're not really concerned about obedience. Been weeks since you've been in the word. Don't, don't go there, he's saying. Those who confess Christ can fall away from Christ. Now, we know, can the elect fall away from Christ? No, but in your experience right now, how do you know if you're saved? By persevering, by continuing on. Many of you, and we've pretty much run out of time already, but many of you could, could, could give from your experiences of your brothers and sisters in Christ, or at least those who seem to know Christ. You could give such warnings about what those do who fall away. I don't mean who go and become members of a different church. That's not falling away. How about those who just leave Christ completely? Who once you, you, you were certain that they're saved, and, and now they don't want anything to do with Christ. You could give such, such warnings of what happened to, to their walks and to their hearts. That's why Hebrews 19, uh, I mean 10 verses 19 to 25, come before this passage, which, 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 which talks about... Uh, uh, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together, encouraging one another daily. It's why verses 35 to 39 come after this. You know, the, 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 the encouragement there of God's promises. Fearing God leads us to take his commands seriously and leads us to take his presence seriously. An attitude that ignores God's commands is not reflective of a heart that's been saved. Right? A heart that ignores God's commands is not reflective of a heart that has been changed, of continuing faith, of persevering faith. Now, many of us can confess that that has happened to us, right? God is gracious to bring us to repentance again and again. But that is not reflective of our heart. It's not what it means to be saved. When, when, when you're disregarding God's commands, you put yourself into the danger zone of saying, am I going to fall away from him? That's why this doctrine of the fear of the Lord is so essential for his people. Now, we're going to, I, I promise we're, we're going to talk about the uh, verses that I talk about there being no more fear, but we are not going to get to those this week, and I'm sorry about that. So it'll have to wait for not next week because, because we have our, our, uh, our biblical finance day. Uh, so after then. But fearing the Lord, uh, yeah, I'm just rambling on right now, right? It's pretty heavy. Uh, let me think if I can think of something more encouraging. Hey, you know, I'll jump ahead to 1 John 4.16. Uh, or how about 4.18? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. 
we're going to spend some more time looking at that verse, but it is an incredibly encouraging verse. We do not fear punishment in the same way. We don't fear punishment as those who don't have Christ, because Christ has taken our punishment. But we also don't fear punishment in the same way, because our lives are full of obedience. Because husbands, you are loving your wives as Christ loves the church. And wives, because you are submitting to your husbands. And because you delight in God's law. And because you're loving your brothers and taking care of their needs. There's all kinds of obedience that is overflowing in our lives that can make us look forward to Judgment Day and say, Maranatha, come quickly, Jesus. I don't have to dread judgment. Yes, the punishment's been taken, but also my life has been marked by obedience. That may not be as comforting to you right now if your life is not currently marked by obedience. And that's why Hebrews talks about fearing the Lord, so that you persevere and that you continue. Let me pray. We can talk more afterwards, and uh, we'll finish someday. Lord willing. Father, it is uh, perhaps easy in an age that we spend so much time thinking about uh, and talking about your wrath uh, being satisfied on your son, so much time thinking about justification and forgiveness. In a sense, I think even even, uh, trying to recover from a church age that so uh, simplified forgiveness just as uh, simply giving assent to a promise. Lord, we we are loving justification, and we're loving uh, your wrath being satisfied and we're left a little, a little confused what to do with these commands to fear you, to perfect holiness out of the fear of you. We're, we're, we're left almost, I think, sometimes needing to, like we need to apologize when Jesus says we're going to be held accountable. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand better what the gospel does and what new life in Christ is and how radically different salvation is. That we would understand more the resources that we have in Christ. That we would understand, like Second Peter 1 says, about how these, these, these promises lead us to make every effort, Lord. I pray, Father, that we would be people who make every effort, who perfect holiness out of a fear of you, uh, uh, who take our lives with such sobriety because we have to give an account to you, but at the same time with such joy knowing that Christ has paid the ransom, this, this liberation cost, so that we can obey you. I pray, Father, that you would help us to, 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 to keep this fear of you uh, before us just as much as we keep a delight in your grace. Help us, Lord, to learn to be people as described by your word. And, and, and I would say not, not an oversimplification. Lord, I pray, Father, that we would not be people who are just going about guilty, continuing in the same sin month after month, year after year, never changing, Lord, but that there would be an awakening and awareness that we're going to have to give an account to you, that, that, that you being judge of us, Lord, yes, we'll keep running to Christ, but also we'd 
be able to look forward to bringing before you how we spent our time and our money and what we watched on television and the way that we cared for our brothers and sisters, Lord, that we would so look forward to Judgment Day because we get to show what you have done and because we are so eager to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Help us, Lord, to live in the fear of you. Thank you, Lord, really, for how in your grace this, 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 this time talking about fear of you just dovetails so wonderfully with Psalm 23, knowing him as our shepherd, but also knowing that our shepherd who brings us by, by the grass and the water and who comforts our, our soul, who restores us, brings us to repentance, and will cudgel us if we need it, Lord. Thank you that you are that kind of God. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if cudgel is a verb, but it is.